Welcome to You Are Here, the podcast where we have conversations with people who have courageously taken the road less traveled. I'm your host, Rachel Ree, and in each episode, we'll be exploring stories from people who have followed their own path and are living life on their own terms. Know that we're here to meet you where you are and where you'd like to be. This is You Are Here. Hi, friend. We made it to episode 20. It's a personal milestone for me because I read a statistic recently that said most podcasters actually quit at this point and don't ever make it to 20 episodes. So I'm very excited to be here and to have made it this far. But also, I'm just really excited and really happy with the growth of the podcast. And I really do truly enjoy learning more about people's journeys in hopes that it gives you, the listener, a different perspective on how you can approach your own life path. And I'm just realizing more and more, especially at a certain age or stage in career, there's a lot of people that gravitate toward these types of stories of people who take unconventional paths and really step into a more authentic and fulfilling way of life. Really, by now, with all of these different guests I've had, hopefully you've been able to listen to a few episodes. I hope that you're just really feeling a bit more empowered and confident in your own path given that there's just so many directions that life takes each of us. And it's really just about embracing our own unique view of the world and how we can shape life into a way that brings us more fulfillment. So today's guest is someone who does just that. Peter Ahn is a tech sales coach who had a long corporate career working at notable places like Google, Slack, Dropbox, and so many others. And as of last year, he stepped into a more entrepreneurial journey of coaching startup founders with their sales approach. He infuses a lot of his direct experience working in tech sales for several years, but he does this in a way where he leads with an authentic voice. He's also Korean American, and he shares what that experience is like when you lead with your identity in the corporate world and how that is or isn't received. I'm super excited to dive into that topic a little bit because obviously I'm also Asian, I'm Korean American, and this topic of identity in the workplace is one that I haven't really touched on the podcast before, and it's one that's obviously affected me in many ways throughout my own career, so it was just really interesting to hear some of his experiences because I could definitely identify with what he was sharing. He also happens to be a client of mine. We've actually been partnering together over the past few months on his business and marketing strategies, and we just got along immediately where we have shared values and we have shared working styles as well. And it's weird to say he is my client because yes, he is factually one, but at this point he's a friend and I just know that his heart is always in the right place in terms of how he approaches relationships in both his personal and professional life. So I hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review wherever you are listening. I know that you are obviously in tech sales coaching now, and we can definitely get more into that later. But I imagine that when you graduated from college, you went to Stanford, that you didn't necessarily think, okay, when I graduate, I'm going to get into tech sales coaching. So what was that expectation like taking us all the way back then? And what led you to this path? Yeah, so I graduated college in 2008. That was before the whole banking crisis was going on. And if you're an economics major at Stanford, which I was, 
you get brainwashed into thinking you need to get into the top consulting or investment banking firms. I could probably name a few as like McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, BCG, Bain. These were the cream of the crop consulting and iBanking firms you want to get into. So I had my eyes set on that. I was intimidated by the case study interviews in consulting. Right. And iBanking interviews terrified me too. And I felt like I was so far behind all the econ whiz kids. And that probably showed in the interview process because I didn't get a single offer. And I probably interviewed at like 10 to 15 different firms across those two industries. And at Stanford, in about January or February of your senior year, most folks have offers. And I felt like I was one of the few who didn't have an offer. In fact, I was desperate enough to apply for Google. Believe it or not, at the time, Google wasn't really a sought-after place to go. But I was like, well, might as well give it a shot. And so I remember uploading my resume, and I thought I had applied, but there was an error on the site. And so my application never went through. So I missed the boat actually the first time around on interviewing at Google too. And so one thing led to another. My best friend happened to know a recruiting person at Google. And so he was able to get my resume through last minute. And so I was interviewing with a bunch of other colleges because Google had a Stanford day, but I missed that. And so I was in this group of probably 50 or 60 candidates interviewing at the last moment to try and get a job. And luckily I got accepted. It was about, I think, May of my senior year where I got the job offer. And then I started working there in August. It's funny to think how it wasn't necessarily a place that people wanted to work for, but now obviously times have changed. Yeah. And I mean, it was a blessing in disguise because I loved my time at Google. I was there for four years. I was doing laundry there every weekend because I had like a laundry room next to a bowling alley. I was eating all three meals there seven days a week because they even had weekend cafes. I was using the gym regularly. And so in a lot of ways, it was a great working environment and a good environment to be healthy. Of course, there were non-glamorous aspects to the job as well, but overall, really loved my time at Google. And what was your role there? Initially, I started as what they called an online operations associate. It was about 100 of us across three offices in Mountain View, Ann Arbor, and I'm forgetting the third office, but there were three offices, and we were manning the 855 to Google toll-free line. So I was probably taking like 20 to 30 toll-free calls a day. I was a customer service rep answering questions about Google AdWords, their flagship product. I was doing that. It was interesting because some folks called about AdWords. Some businesses thought we were Google Maps, which is funny. (laughs) So they would complain to us that Google Maps was broken. Some people thought we were an internet service provider. So they would call us and say, hey, my internet's broken. And so I'd have to talk them through like how Google isn't really related to your internet service provider. And nowadays that's different with Google Fiber. But at the time, obviously Google and Comcast were very separate entities and, and still are. So it was an interesting experience in patience. And then also getting the dynamic breadth of different types of people and calls that you take. That was really, really fascinating. So I did that for about a year. And then I transitioned to the television commercial team. So they had a TV ads experimental product where Google was trying to take traditional TV buying processes and put it into more of an online auction system. 
And so that felt like more of a startup within a large corporation because nobody knew Google was getting into television commercials. That was my first experience into enterprise sales because it was mainly targeting large brands who had a TV budget. GoDaddy was like my biggest customer. And so they were buying multi-million dollar TV packages and Google was experimental arm of that budget to try and see if they could do something innovative with online auction setups for television commercials. So I did that for the rest of my time at Google, really selling into that TV commercial space. It sounds like sales is something that you naturally transitioned into from that more customer support role. Is that accurate? Initially, the new grads, they weren't going to put them in front of enterprise clients. So it was very much high volume customer service rep type of environment. Right. And it's interesting that even though that was not something that you initially sought after, here you are 15-ish years later and you have a whole career within sales itself. Yes. It's like an accidental entry into sales, but now it's obviously my passion and what I love doing. And I can't imagine being an iBank or a consultant. What was it about that early time, really getting your career going, really having an emphasis on sales that really drew you to it? I think it's the human interaction part of sales. And I I didn't realize this at the time. Now I think I understand it's a passion of mine is getting to know people on a deep level, on a personal level. And I think in sales, regardless of who you're talking to, whether or not they are trying to buy a multi-million dollar product from you or think their internet broke, you have to have that connection to come to a resolution, regardless of how complex or simple it is. And so I think that ability to connect with people, get to know people in a really high-paced environment where technology is still something that's pushing the boundaries, I think was really exciting. So that's the first part, just the relationship building. The other thing I think I really love doing is teaching. And when you're selling a product that's lesser known to the world, like the TV ads product or Dropbox for business when I was selling it or Slack at the time was super early for what it was today, I think you need to educate people on paradigm shifts in technology and why your product is going to be successful in a five to 10 year horizon. So I think I love that too, the teaching, the educating and having people see the light bulb moment because you are telling them something that maybe they didn't know before they talked to you or they didn't think about. One thing that I'm noticing too is that even though you started off your career within operations support, as you mentioned, it's very much relationship building and the communication of it. So I think right now we're seeing so many people looking for their next phase of their career. There's obviously a lot of layoffs and a lot of just transitions in people's lives when it comes to their career. So what do you think is a good lesson that you've learned from those early days or even now in terms of how to set yourself up for success for the transitionary moments in your career? I guess there's a couple pieces of advice. One is take chances on things that you didn't expect you would want to do. So Google was something that was not in my rear view mirror even, but it just came to me and I decided to take a chance on it. Obviously, I didn't really have a choice at the time with job offers, but even within Google, when I went to the TV advertising team, 
it was something new that was risky because I had never done enterprise sales, but I was drawn to it because of the customer relationship aspect that I saw a lot of those account managers really live and breathe every day. I think that's my advice is if there's something within a job that you don't really understand initially, but there's an aspect, the skill, trait, and the people who are running that job that you're drawn to, try it out, right? Even if you don't necessarily have the credentials to. So that's, I think, first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is really think about what gives you energy every day when you wake up. And it sounds very simple, but a lot of people, I don't think, follow this, where if you're dreading going to do your job, that says something about where you are. And for me, the energy generating parts were the human interaction. And when things didn't evolve to that level of going deeper into strategic relationship building, that's when I like switched. So at Google, when I first started off as a customer service rep, it was high volume, a lot of surface level conversations. And I got burnt out because I could never go deep into a problem area or deep into an enterprise organization's problems. So I decided to seek a change. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but I proactively said, I can't be in this situation anymore. Luckily, it was within the same context of the same company, but I decided to make an intentional change because I wasn't excited to go to work every single day. So I think those are the two pieces of advice I would have. Yeah. When you say seeking change, that's really interesting because now coming to fast forward to present day, where just last year you were at another inflection point within your career where you decided to strike off on your own and become an entrepreneur and start your own business. So what was it at that moment? Did you realize now is the time for me to go all in on myself? So there were a few things that were happening. One is I was already engaging with a lot of startup founders because throughout my career, I had figured out the zero to whatever motion, right? How do you build something from scratch? That was really where a lot of my experience was. Even at the big companies, it was usually trying to figure out a new frontier of sales, right? So for Dropbox, getting into enterprise when it's a consumer brand. Slack trying to close enterprise deals when it was a lot of just product-led growth motion. So organically, a lot of these founders and I were doing drinks or coffee or I would take 30 minutes here and there. And so the energy was already there to help this group of people. The second thing I think that happened was I was at a point in my career where I had seen enough templates and enough growth patterns where I was confident in my ability to formally impact these startup founders. So that was another factor that was, I think, a, a tailwind in helping me go to my next thing. The last thing I'll say, it's a little bit of a sensitive topic, but there were starting to be doubts about where I was taking the company I was at, right? And whether or not I was the right person for the job. And I'm not here to debate whether or not I was the right person, but whenever there's discussions or doubt around whether or not you're the right person, for me, it becomes difficult to mentally be in that space 120%. I right. do my best work when I'm confident. I do my best work when I have a support system who believes I can do more than what I believe I can do in some cases. And it was an environment where, unfortunately, we didn't see eye to eye, you know, me and my former manager on whether or not I could scale and step up to the plate. Again, that's debatable whether or not I could have, right? I couldn't, but... I decided at that moment that it was best to leave the work of art that we had collaborated on together for two and a half years versus having it continue to go into this world of doubt and 
uncertainty and fear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And obviously, I'm really familiar with your content, and I can link to a couple things within the show notes. But I know that you do regularly discuss the Asian American experience and what that's like in the corporate world, and specifically also what you've experienced in sales. So is that something that you can dive into? And was that part of the impetus into wanting to strike off on your own? Yeah, definitely. I think I've always been super passionate about how Asian Americans show up in tech and specifically in tech sales. And it's because as I was progressing in my career, I didn't have a lot of examples of Asian men or women who are leading sales or revenue teams. And not only that, I've been a part of a lot of conversations, a lot of discussions where I felt discriminated against, where I felt like the other person in the room, where I felt misunderstood because of how I carry myself and how that's different from maybe Western leadership styles. Although I've been thinking about that, I've never actually really posted about this topic because of fear of backlash. When you're working for a company and your manager is not Asian and you're talking about the discrimination of your manager, that's a pretty scary situation for a lot of people because you want to keep your job. And so I kept quiet for several years, but now it's been a breath of fresh air. It's been a huge weight lifted off my shoulder because as I post my personal stories and as I talk about topics like the bamboo ceiling and the model minority myth, a lot of folks reach out on DM to say, hey, this is something I'm dealing with. And then a lot of folks also publicly support and amplify the message. And I think we need more of those people so that the next generation of Asians and Asian Americans doesn't feel afraid to show up as a full self. Because unfortunately today, I do think a large percentage of Asian tech sellers are still afraid of the backlash, afraid to show up, afraid to talk about culture and race in a way that helps their career. You mentioned a few topics, one being the bamboo ceiling, another being the model minority myth. And then you also mentioned Western leadership styles. So there's a very mixed audience of listeners here who might not necessarily be as familiar with what it's like to be Asian American. Could you start to dive into a little bit what that bamboo ceiling is in the workplace and what you've experienced? And then also what the differences are between the Western leadership style versus what would be a more Eastern-centric approach? Sure. I think the reason why it's so hard for Asian Americans and Asians to talk about this particular topic is because Asian Americans and Asians show up as a big percentage of the workforce, especially in tech. In fact, if you're Asian, you're more likely to get a tech job than any other race because people expect you to put in the work there's this concept that you're going to put your head down, not complain, and that you're intelligent because a large percentage of us have higher education degrees. Now, the other side of that coin is when you do feel discrimination and you do complain, the majority, I'm generalizing, a lot of folks can see the situation and perceive it as, why are you complaining when you have so much, when you have so much privilege? And to go deeper into that, because there is discrimination, based off of this model minority myth that you're just going to work hard and not complain, we often get overlooked for promotions. We often get seen as a passive group of individuals who, while they will put in the work and drive the company forward, may not be in a position to have executive presence, right? And now I'll dive into kind of the definition of executive presence for Western and Eastern cultures. For Western cultures, especially in sales, 
it's very in your face. You're trained to be somewhat aggressive. There's books like, what's that book from Chris Voss? Never Split the Difference. And this concept of hardline sales and this confident in your face macho sales style is what a lot of leaders embody. Now, the problem with that as an Asian American man, I'll just speak from my personal experience, is I'm not in your face. I don't like hardline sales tactics. I would rather listen to my customer prospects speak before I speak and truly understand their pains and problems before I interject with my own opinions. And that Eastern way of handling a sales conversation or business conversation is very Confucian, right? There's this concept of harmony and Confucianism. And so these two perceptions and these two realizations of leadership values have friction points with each other. And where society and mass media over the last few decades may have seen the Western leadership value as strong, what I'm advocating for is for society to see the softer, empathetic, more intentional leadership styles like what Asian Americans embody often as also strong, also having very strong executive presence, and also being able to lead a group of people and companies in a way that's extremely effective. And you definitely strike me as someone who has leaned into that more authentic way of showing up. Have you experienced feedback or certain discussions when you were in the corporate world in terms of, hey, maybe this isn't the approach because they were expecting you to show up in the more Western valued way? Yeah. I mean, it goes both ways. I think, I think a lot of the feedback sometimes is show up in a Western way as in like, why don't you speak up in meetings? That's been said to me multiple times. And I know a lot of Asian Americans have gotten that feedback too. Half jokingly, even my Asian counterparts would say, just act like a white guy or my Asian friends and peers act loud, like speak up. And so I've tried those methods actually, because you always want to try everything especially if you feel like you're not being afforded the same career trajectory as other people, but it just never felt natural to me. And in some cases where I do speak up, then the conversation comes to why are you being emotional? And I think it's because non-Asian folks sometimes don't know how to react to a supposedly passive Asian being loud and opinionated. And they may say they want that, but then a lot of Asian Americans get punished for drawing outside the lines, right? Or actually trying to be bold because it doesn't fit the archetype that society has placed on us. So it's a difficult, you could see how nuanced this topic is because there is feedback to show up as something that is Western, but then it can backfire and it can also feel inauthentic if it's not how you were raised or it's not where your cultural roots are. What are some ways that people who are currently working in those types of teams or work environments, what are some ways that they can start to show up more authentically or have discussions with people to let them know that they have a different approach? Because I think right now you're working for yourself, so it's a little bit easier now to lead more authentically. But for people who are still in that very more traditional work environment, what's some advice that you have for those people? Yeah, I think as much as possible, this takes a lot of courage, but I would bring up the race, identity, culture topic early on in your one-on-one discussions with your manager, because every manager, every leader wants to support their report. 
if you're in a healthy environment. And if you don't talk about some of the insecurities and the bamboo ceiling issues or the trauma you've gone through being Asian American, these leaders can't help you. My previous job, I actually brought up the discussion. I said, hey, these are some of the things that I'm seeing. When I go into sales leadership meetings, all I see is me and a bunch of other people who don't look like me. And it might be the case that it's in my mind that I'm the other person when other people are welcoming me and listening to me and all that. But in my DNA, I still have this feeling of flight or fight. You know, it triggers me when people speak over me, for example. It triggers me when people don't ask my opinion and the meeting ends and there's no time for the quiet people in the room to speak up. So I just want you to know this about me because in group settings, I might not be the first person to speak up, but I hope that you will give me the space to contribute, whether that's in that group setting live or in a one-on-one separately. That's a very tangible discussion that has to do with workplace behavior. The other thing, I think we need to educate our allies on the systemic issues too, right? It's not just about a leader running a meeting in in an inclusive manner, but it's also about the statistics. And so if you're an Asian American professional, I would bring to the table with your employee resource groups or your HR person to talk about the fact that, hey, there's four and a half percent of directors in Fortune 1000 companies are Asian, but there's a huge disparity there. In tech, there's probably like 25, 30% of workers are Asian. But if you look at leadership, it's, I think, in the 5 to 6% range. I think there's tangible things that we could do to educate the now. And then I think there's long-term discussion that also needs to be like a drumbeat around educating the rest of society that there's some systemic shifts that really need to happen. And I always like to say this, I feel like we're chipping away at it, but we're not going to be able to chip away at it if we talk about it once a quarter or once a year for Asian Heritage Month and then nothing changes. You're definitely an outspoken person in a mindful way with your own approach. Is this something that you feel just with your work experience you developed over time? Is this something maybe in your own upbringing that you were either fostered or not fostered to do? How did this sort of approach come to be and show up in your present day? I think this approach started with uh, enterprise deals and closing big enterprise deals, actually, for me. I'm sure there's something deeper rooted in my childhood, but I can't verbalize that. I can't think of that right now. But I do know, like what I do consciously remember is in enterprise deals, I remember thinking, okay, I am the other person. A lot of folks who are at competitor companies don't look like me. They're a lot older than me. Because of that, I need to do something different and I need to challenge the prospect in a different way if I'm actually going to win in this David versus Goliath situation, right? Because remember when I was selling Dropbox, we were going up against Microsoft, Box. These were heavily enterprise DNA companies. And so in that career moment, I decided I am going to be a lot more challenging. I'm going to challenge the prospect to think about things differently, because if not, I'm not going to win this deal. If I don't tell NBC Universal that they need to go against the grain to innovate and challenge their status quo thinking, it's not going to be a strategic enterprise deal we can close as a consumer company. So I think it started there where I realized, and once I had a couple wins there, it was scary at the time because I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose against Microsoft and Box. But then 
when I realized the wins that were happening and why they were happening, because I would ask my prospects what was different about the sales process, they would always say, you treated us in a different manner. You took the sales process much more authentic, much more intentional, much more data-driven, and you are outspoken about the fact that we needed to take a different path. I think that power, once you realize it, you lean into it a lot more. So that's on the corporate side. On the Asian-American topic, the AAPI topic, which you were talking about, I was also scared to do my first post because of backlash. And I think because personally, once I got my message out there, it was such a big inspiration and motivation, like getting all these messages. I got a lot of energy from it. And I was like, I have to talk about this more, not because a lot of people are talking about it, but because people who aren't talking about it get a lot of energy and inspiration from the fact that someone is bringing it up. And I still think there probably is backlash back channel because I look at some of my posts and it's 99% Asian people liking it. So that means a lot of non-Asian people are watching it and seeing it too, but they're choosing not to engage. And so there's still a lot of work we need to do to continue to be outspoken, I think, for people to hear our message. But it's just been like a breath of fresh air for me to see that my message resonates or the topic resonates. Yeah. And what are some of those messages that you're receiving from the Asian American community? Thanks to you, I reached out to 90 people who supported the bamboo ceiling post that I wrote about. And almost I feel like all of them accepted and replied and said, this is something I'm dealing with. So I appreciate you educating the public about it. And then sometimes people will say, I've never even heard of the bamboo ceiling, even Asian people in our community. Same. And me. So, me too. Yeah, yeah. And so they say, hey, thank you for educating me. So that affirmation is huge because then I feel like I'm a true thought leader providing something new if they haven't heard about the bamboo ceiling. And then there's people who reshare it too. And it's just mind blowing that somebody would reshare somebody else's post, a stranger's post. But I think that means that there's something in the message that speaks to them personally. Yeah, you are definitely leaning more into just sharing authentic stories of your own experience, what it's like to be in sales, what it's like to be sales and Asian as well. So how is this type of approach that you are showing up with online and within your business, how is this trickling down into now the business that you've created? And do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So the business that I'm in right now, I'm focusing a lot on group CEO coaching for founders who are trying to get from the zero to one phase, zero to one million in revenue. And I think the way that my passion for authenticity shows up is I spend a lot of time with the CEOs, even though it's a group coaching program for 12 weeks. I spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with each CEO as well, getting to know them, their background, why they created the company, and what hasn't quite triggered for them in terms of learning sales fully. And I think that's really important because to do founder-led sales, you can't just follow a sales manual. You actually have to dig deep into what values you have and then use that personal edge to actually do the sales. If you're an engineer and you don't like the hard sell, don't do the hard sell. If you're a product manager and you're very passionate about the product roadmap, product vision, lean into that and figure out how you can sell the under the hood aspects of your product instead of trying to figure out the one line marketing spiel, right? 
And so that's a lot of what I focus on. And it's relevant today because a lot of the modern buyers don't like to buy from playbook driven teams either. They're very savvy. They do a lot of research and they can sniff out authentic and inauthentic founders right away. So I think that it's even more important today when it's so noisy to stand out. And the only way you can stand out is by being yourself. And that is very, very true for sales processes too. Yeah. I was going to say, is there something common that you're seeing in all the pitches that you see and are a part of? Is that the overarching common theme is that it's not authentic? Yeah. I think that even in our first sessions, we talk about first impressions and some CEOs are like, I didn't know I could talk about myself or they'll say, I don't think the buyer wants to know about me. I think the buyer wants to know about the product. And I think that's just completely false. Today, especially in enterprise sales, people still buy from people. And if somebody's going to hand over a five, six, seven figure check, of course the product needs to do well, but the brilliance in the relationship and the partnership is also in the trust factor that's created by genuine rapport building. And a lot of enterprise buyers will say this, they're buying into not only the product, but the vision and the team. So then, of course, on the first call, you have to talk about why you are in the best position to have built the product you've built. I think it's something that's really important that founders need to realize and something I coach because in a hyper-competitive environment, you have to sell yourself, your brains, as well as the product. So to transition a little bit, you have been talking about your coaching. What is one surprising aspect that you've discovered in this new journey that you've been on? It's coming up on around seven or eight months of you doing this on your own. So what's something surprising? That's a great question. I think what's surprising is by focusing on the thing that I wanted to focus on for the business, which is helping founders grow a lot of other opportunities have come up. The Asian American community activism angle is not really something I initially focused on, but it naturally organically came up because of me sharing more about my personal stories. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. It wasn't like I built my business and said, now I'm going to be an AAPI activist. That wasn't what I was thinking. And then there's brands that reach out to you. There's companies that reach out to you who also want to learn about you, which has been really exciting. And so sponsorship opportunities, these are things that have been very surprising that I never in my wildest dreams would have thought would be remotely close opportunities that I could actually act on and execute on. Initially, I was just trying to make sure I could pay the bills and the mortgage and just do that with coaching. But now there's distinct products that I'm selling, and I never really thought that this could be an option as a solopreneur. I thought as a solopreneur, I'd be selling my hours and my services, but I'm in a place now where I feel like, thanks to you as well, with all your help with coaching me and my business, I feel like I have distinct products that are offering to the world that are tied to my identity. Thank you for that, by the way. That was not an opportunity and opening to, to compliment me. So No, it came up organically. That. Don't worry. It wasn't seated. So earlier in the conversation, we had talked about people in this transitionary moment in their lives. So as you have gone on to your solopreneur journey as well, do you have any advice that you'd like to share for anyone that wants to strike out on their own? 
Yeah, I think advice for folks is start assessing what that could be if you go off on your own right now while you still have a job, right? There's no reason that it has to be a hard transition. For me, I was already talking to founders in my free time and I enjoyed it. And I knew there was energy there because I had tried it. If I were to cut over abruptly and start to try and spark those relationships, it wouldn't have felt natural to me. That's my advice to people who want to go off on their own. There's probably already energy sources that excite you today. Think about that first, because as a solopreneur, and for me, I want this to be the rest of my life. And so if it's going to be the rest of my life, it was always there in some way, shape or form, even when I had a job. And so I think that's something that I would impart on people because going off and hard pivoting to something that you've never gotten energy from is going to be a drain, in my opinion, and a huge risk. But if you go towards something where you know there's an energy source, then that's going to be much more enjoyable. And I think you'll be able to earn money faster too. Yeah, that's great advice. I know that you work a ton. There's a lot of hours because you are very passionate about what it is that you do. And you're always thinking of ways to build and create and just have longer lasting impact for the founders that you do support. I'm very big into health and just your overall well-being. What are ways that you support yourself in terms of self-care? Sure. Yeah. So first thing is I'm like really into fitness. I try and carve out time on my calendar. I have dedicated TRX time, right? Friday afternoons, I block it off to go to the gym. If I can, on occasion, I'll try and invite a friend over to my gym and spend the morning with them and catch up with them and be okay with that, even if it means cramming meetings in another part of the week. So those are things I'm being much more intentional about. Again, like also thanks to you, you helped me think through some of this like calendar blocking, right? So that's been very helpful. And then the second thing is I am always plugged in. I do need a partner who can keep me honest on that. So my wife, she has no problem calling me out if I look like I'm preoccupied on my phone and my son's trying right. to ask me a question, right? I get all these like videos and content or I'm trying to be a present parent, right? Which is really hard for workaholics. And so I think that's also been really great for me is just having a partner who can keep me accountable because without my wife, I would probably throw a lot more time into work. The other thing about that is she's also understanding and picks up some of the slack too when there are intense moments where I need to like work a little bit longer or work later or take an early call and not be able to drop off my son. So it's all a balance, but I think the key thing is you need to be intentional about it. And I'm not perfect. There are waves too. There are some weeks where I feel like they're worse than others, but I think documenting through your calendar and like having somebody you can talk to about how you actually are feeling and having accountability buddies who care about the same things you do around like fitness and health. I think that all helps to at least keep the general healthiness of your life up. So you're very intentional with your time, your energy, and making sure that you do have focused energy around your family and fitness. What are you intentionally trying to build or create for this next year? A big thing that I'm trying to intentionally create is the obvious one is this group coaching program. And for me, it'd be amazing if 
there were a group of 50 plus CEOs who are extremely happy with where their business is because they've gone through the program. So that's something I'm intentionally focusing on. I think the second thing I'm intentionally trying to build in the business sense is presence in the AAPI community. Even though it's accidental initially, now it's like a very big focus area of mine to show up for the community and to build a sense of confidence around Asian Americans that hasn't been there before, right? So those are the two things I think in my professional career I'm trying to build. And then the last thing I'm trying to build is we just moved to San Diego like last year. So basketball is a big part of my life and it's a way that I network with people. So just building back up my basketball community so that I have a group of friends that value that fitness and the connection to basketball. That's also something I'm really excited about. And I actually really love that you're sharing all of those different aspects of your life, because I think that when people go into solopreneurship, as you were mentioning, if you're more prone to be a workaholic, it can be so easy to just fall into that trap of working tons of hours. But Part of the beauty of being a solopreneur as well is to be able to really be able to craft and design your life in a more intentional way that you might not necessarily have that luxury if you were working for someone else. Totally. I like that phrase, craft and design an intentional life. I think it's exactly what I'm trying to do because we have limited time on this earth. And I think the number one thing for me is making sure I'm happy and that the people around me are happy. And in that, there's a lot of aspects to life that you have to balance. It's not just one thing. So hopefully I can figure out that balance this year and continue to be happy. 